I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. When looking through the research on imagination, memory, and the brain, one name that keeps appearing is that of Dan Schachter. We recently interviewed Donna Rose Addis on this podcast, and she and Dan often collaborate on research. Dan has been a professor of psychology in the psychology department in Harvard University since 1991, focusing mainly on memory and more recently on the relationship between memory and imagination using techniques from cognitive psychology and neuroscience. We chatted via Skype and I started by asking him if he might firstly introduce us to the hippocampus. If he was introducing it to someone at a party who knew nothing about it, where would he start? Well, the hippocampus is a... Is a structure buried deep in the middle of the brain that came into prominence in neuroscience really starting in the 1950s uh, with the famous case of the amnesic patient HM that was a young man who was uh, was in the hospital uh, as a result of epilepsy and was having surgery to remove the hippocampus and a couple of other nearby parts of the brain that are buried deep in the inner or medial part of the temporal lobe. It wasn't known at that time exactly what the hippocampus does. And in the case of HM, the removal of the hippocampus and several other structures produced a severe deficit in the ability to establish new memories of ongoing experiences that he could recall consciously. So, Starting with that, that didn't really that didn't really uh, specifically establish a link between the hippocampus specifically and memory because there were other parts of the medial temporal lobe that were also removed. But the hippocampus was what people focused on, and that suggested a, an important link between the hippocampus and our ability to establish memories of ongoing experiences that we can recall, call to mind consciously at a later time. And that really initiated 50 plus years of work on the hippocampus that has highlighted that it is critical in the ways that were initially thought by people like Brenda Milner, who was uh, the neuropsychologist who tested initially patient AHM and many others since. And uh, there's also been kind of a separate line of research that's emphasized the importance of the hippocampus in spatial processing and spatial uh, cognition, uh, our ability to find our way around and re- uh, remember where we've been. Uh, this is work that was, among others, spearheaded by uh, John O'Keefe, uh, who won the Nobel Prize for this work a number of years ago, based in England. Um, and O'Keefe and his colleague Lynn Nadell wrote a very uh, influential book about called The Hippocampus as a Cognitive Map that was published in the late 1970s. And so really it's been these two, two themes of the hippocampus, its involvement in memory and involvement in spatial processing. And more recently, those have come together um, to suggest a role for the hippocampus in imagination as well as memory and spatial processing. And the three of those those three things are very tightly uh, inter- intertwined. And, um, and, and as, as I understand it, the, the thinking up until like 15, 20 years ago was this idea that different parts of the brain did different things. And the hippocampus was the place where those things happened. And now people think much more in terms of, uh, in terms of networks 
and and Scott Barry Kaufman uh, who, who refers to the the default mode network as the imagination network but the impression I get from your work is that the imagination in its healthiest form depends on several different networks and uh, and can be can be can be activated by different networks which sometimes only operate when the other ones aren't there or sometimes they're working uh, could you talk a bit about that how, how the, yeah. the imagination networks yes um so some of our work the work that uh, donna addis and i and others did uh, about 10 years ago uh pointed toward this network that is broadly known as the the default network or default mode network as a collection of regions that comes online uh, when people remember past experiences and also when they imagine future experiences or and other kinds of experiences. And so for that reason, it seemed to have a role both in memory and imagination, and some have referred to it as, as the imagination network, and it definitely does play a key role uh, in various kinds of imagination. So, you know, if, if you ask people to imagine some event that has not taken place um, compared to appropriate control conditions, if you're doing a neuroimaging experiment, you're going to very reliably see the default mode network come online. Now, at, at around the same time, there were other studies suggesting that this default network may not really be all that functionally useful in that when you give people difficult cognitive tasks to do that require a lot of attention and, and, and cognitive effort, default network regions tend to go down, uh, tend to show decreased activity. And they show increased activity when people are just left alone and in a scanner and really not doing much of, of anything, perhaps because they're engaging in forms of, of imagination. But these kinds of observations led some people to suggest that the default network is what they called a task-negative network. In other words, it's not clear exactly what it does, but we can be pretty confident that it doesn't play a role in goal-directed, functionally useful cognition. And maybe the kinds of uh, imaginations that it supports are things that are more akin to daydreams or idle fantasies or, or you know, just internally focused thoughts that really don't do much for you. So um, around 2010, um, in my lab, a postdoc, uh, Nathan Sprang, was uh, doing some work on autobiographical uh, planning, where in our initial studies of, of memory and imagination, we were giving people word cues and asking them to either remember a related past experience or imagine a future experience. So I might give you a cue word such as vacation and say, just imagine something that might happen related to this word in the next uh, next few months. And you might say, well, I'm, I imagine I'm going on a, on a vacation to, to uh, California and I'm going to enjoy the warm sunshine, something of that nature. Um, in the spring studies, people were given a more challenging, goal-directed imagination task, if you will, that we refer to as autobiographical planning. So here, instead of just imagining any old thing that you might want to imagine, you would be uh, instructed to try to come up with an autobiographical plan to achieve a specified goal. Um, you know, so 
you know, the goal might have something to do, let's say, in an educational uh, context with, uh, you know, graduating from college. And you would have to come up with a plan that would integrate several steps that would allow you to uh, achieve your goal and also consider obstacles that might get in, get in the way. And so people were scanned when they did this more goal-directed, complex, autobiographical planning task. And what was interesting here is that compared to a, a control condition, uh, the default network came online, and that was consistent with previous observations, but another network also came online and coupled its activity with a default network, a network known as the frontoparietal control network. That's a network that typically comes online when you give people cognitively demanding tasks to do. So here in these studies, and uh, the first one was published in 2010, and there have been several since, what we were seeing is that there's a coupling of the default network and a, an executive control network when people are engaged this, in this more demanding uh, form of autobiographical planning that involves considerable imaginative activity. So that line of work, I think, has really uh, provided strong evidence against the view that it's the default network is, is a task-negative network, that it doesn't really support useful goal-directed cognition. Uh, it clearly does, but it supports goal-directed directed cognition of a particular kind um, when we're kind of focusing in on the internal landscape, but in this case, doing important cognitive work. And interestingly, uh, in more recent work on uh, that's focused more on, on creativity, uh, obviously closely related, has shown that in several different situations uh, in, during uh, creative cognition, uh, you see you see this kind of default executive coupling uh, going on. Mm. And how do stress and anxiety and trauma impact firstly the hippocampus, uh, but also on those on those wider networks and the ability of uh, on our ability to be imaginative? Um, generally negatively. Um, so the hippocampus has long been thought to be, you know, affected, uh, affected negatively by stress. And of course, anxiety has an important relationship, uh, to the imag to imagination because it, it can lead us, uh, to a position where we're, uh, you know, where we're focused on imagining, uh, negative future outcomes that may, uh, may further, uh, cause us to become even more anxious. So we may be anxious, we may start looking at the future in, in a negative way, uh, constructing simulations of, of negative outcomes, uh, and that you know, may make, make us even uh, more anxious. So those two things are, are related in important, uh, important ways. Um, um, one of the th questions that seems to come up a lot in the things that I've been reading is the question of is th whether the imagination is is a kind of va completely value neutral thing or so if you are um you know hitler was as imaginative as picasso for example um so the, the imagination can go one way or the other and, and both both are manifestations of imagination or there's another the other perspective that says actually the the imagination in an in a an untraumatized unstressed undamaged person 
leans much more towards imagining positive scenarios and being a kind of a positive imagination. So if we see people who are imagining really dark sort of visions of the future, sort of, I don't know, Donald Trump always comes to mind, but, you know, actually, if, if, if you have somebody like that who is imagining dreadful things and then inflicting them on people, is that just, that's just the imagination or is that the imagination being being sort of filtered through a sort of a damaged, anxious, stressed kind of a... Well, it really, it really depends on the situation and what's being imagined and what's being imagined. I would try to avoid, you know, really broad statements, uh, you know, like the imagination is this or the imagination is that. So, for example, um, we know that there's generally an optimism bias when we think about and imagine the future. People tend to be biased optimistically, and that may serve some useful functions. However, that can also get us into trouble when if there are real obstacles in the way that we need to take into account that we don't think about those because we're overly optimistic. So a realistic uh, incorporation of potential negative future scenarios into, you know, uh, into imagination can be productive when it's appropriate. Uh, so what you're talking about are situations maybe where uh, the ne negativity is overdone or the negativity is overemphasized, and that's the kind of thing you do see in anxiety uh, in anxiety disorders and, and anxious, uh, anxious conditions. Um, so it's not, you know, strictly speaking, one thing or another, uh, you know, uh, negativity is, is bad, positivity is good, uh, neither are necessarily... Uh, the case in absolute terms, it, it very much depends on the particular situation, I think, that you're imagining mm -hmm. and what kinds of strategies uh, and behaviors are necessary to achieve a, a future goal. Mm. Um, one of the things, thank you, that, I'd, um, that I've, uh, that was, that you talk about a lot in your work is that ability to look at the future uh, and imagine the future. And it feels like in our, in, certainly from when I was a child, that actually we seem to collectively become, be talking about the future much less. You know, there seems to be, in the 70s and 80s, it was all about the future and all about the 21st century. Nobody really talks about the 22nd century very much. And it, it feels like in politics and everything, we seem to, the future looks too complicated and scary and we seem to not be looking at that so much anymore. Is there a reason why why we might be losing that sort of ability to look at the future, do you think? I, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't know, you know, I'd, I'd want to know that that's actually a, an empirical fact. Yeah. I mean, that's your impression. It may, it may be so. I'm, I'm not sure if it is, if it is so. Um, you know, I think that there, you know, when, when, the future is scary. It may be something that you want to look away from for exactly for that reason. Um, another point is that we know from a lot of research that one's imaginings of near future events tend to be a lot richer, more vivid than imaginings of uh, far future events. Mm -hmm. So, for example, as you're approaching uh, the turn of the century uh, from the 20th 21st, that's pretty close in in time. You can imagine concrete scenarios. You can think about ways in which life, you know, might be different or things you might be doing. Uh, we're still pretty far away uh, from the from the next century. So I would tend to think it 
think of it in those terms that it may be just a little too far away to have a really concrete uh, imagine you know uh, or simulation of of what you might be doing or, or what might be happening so I'm not sure we would have to look too much further than that mm. if there is an ex if there is a phenomenon to be explained so the the, the, the research that, that Kun he Kim did the creativity crisis she looked at divergent thinking as a mm -hmm. as, as a kind of a, a a proxy I suppose for measuring the imagination of a population so her thing was that when you look at it like that that imagination and creativity imagination and IQ rose together till 1990 and then they and then they separated um, do you think that divergent thinking is although it's imperfect it gives us some sense of the of, of, of the imagination level and and would you have a sense of the state of health of our collective imagination in, in 2018 um, divergent thinking is one important index of imagination. We've studied that some because we've been interested in one of, one of the fo uh, focal points of research in my lab has been the extent to which the capacity for what we call episodic retrieval or episodic memory uh, impacts imagination. So we know, for example, that amnesic patients who have very poor ability to remember their own experiences also have difficulties imagining the future and have been shown also to have decreased divergent creative thinking. Mm -hmm. And we've done some research in my lab that has shown that divergent thinking or measures of divergent thinking can be uh, increase by a procedure that we've come to refer to in my lab as a, an episodic specificity induction. This is basically brief training in recollecting details of a recent experience. Um, then we then look at after you've had this brief training and just remembering in detail, for example, unpacking in a lot of detail uh, what you remember from a video that you just saw. And a lot of work in my lab suggests that that gets you into kind of what we call an episodic retrieval mode where you're really focused on the details of people, places, objects that um, constitute uh, events in one's life, in one's life. And that and what we're interested in these experiments is after you've had this episodic specificity training, how does that carry over to a later task that you would uh, might perform? And the idea is that if we see an impact of that episodic specificity training or induction on a subsequent task, that tells us that that task, at least in some circumstances, does and can draw on episodic retrieval. So to bring it back to divergent thinking, we studied this with a kind of a classic divergent thinking task known as the alternate uses task. So this is where you've got to come up with uh, novel uses of familiar objects. So. I might give you as a cue the word brick, and your task in the alternate uses task is to generate uh, unusual but appropriate uses of a brick. And so the number of uh, unusual, novel, but appropriate uses that you come up with is roughly speaking is one, is one um, index of divergent thinking very commonly used in the field. So what we found in these studies is that um, – if you've just had the episodic specificity induction, then you come up with a, a few more uses 
novel uses of items such as a brick or a paper clip or whatever than if you've had a control induction where you're thinking in more general terms about the properties of the video you saw as opposed to unpacking the specific episodic details. We've got several studies on this from my lab. Uh, they were done with a, a graduate student in my lab, Kevin Medora, and also with Donna Rose Addis was involved in, in some of this work. Uh, so that suggests to us that the capacity for constructing a detailed episodic simulation, a mental uh, event that's populated with a lot of people, places, and objects, when you're in a set to do that, that actually seems to enhance divergent thinking. And we've done some very recent work in the uh, fMRI scanner that shows, for example, that after you've just had a uh, episodic specificity induction, and now you do the alternate uses task as the virgin creative thinking, a couple of interesting things happen compared to a control condition. Number one is that you see increased activity in the hippocampus, which we know comes online during episodic memory retrieval and um, imagining future events and so on. That shows a boost during the alternate uses task. And we were talking earlier about interactions between the default network and uh, executive control, you see some evidence of increased interaction between components of those networks during divergent creative thinking on alternate uses task when it just when it follows on uh, an episodic specificity induction. So that induction to get you in a mode of detailed episodic retrieval seems to impact the way at a neural level that you carry out divergent thinking with a little more activity in the hippocampus, a couple of other regions, and an increase in uh, uh, functional connectivity uh, between default and executive uh, networks. Um, so those are some things we've learned about divergent thinking. I think it's important, you know, whether there's a societal crisis in divergent thinking, I can't, I can't really speak to that. If there, if there was, how else, how, how might it manifest, do you think? If, we, if, if she was right and we were seeing a decline in, in our ability to, to, be, to be imaginative, how might, it, how might we see it? Where might, what, what might we look for as ways to sort of back that idea up? How might it manifest in, in the world around us, do you think? Yeah, it could be, you know, a, a reduction at the broadest scale, a reduction in innovation. Um, if th these kinds of abilities are going to be used you know, broadly uh, to innovate, I don't, I don't know that there is uh, is such evidence. Um, you know, we might see it in terms of more people just having a more in, impoverished. Uh, views of their future and uh, more stereotypical thinking. Uh, that's what it might be. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not convinced that that's a, that's a broad uh, phenomenon. There may be some empirical evidence suggesting aspects of that, but I think we'd need a lot more before we're going to, before I would uh, be willing to buy into a general decrease in imagination and, uh, across the globe. Um, one of the things that, that about the default mode network is that it needs it needs space. It needs sort of time and uh, that kind of space where you're not doing something. That daydreaming kind of uh, space. But it seems like 
so often the world around us, the experience is that whenever we have time, when that might happen, we get our phones out. And uh, um, I interviewed Larry Rosen and Adam Gazzale recently with all their the distracted mind stuff. Adam was mm -hmm. talking about it. He says we have a, a, a cognition crisis uh, because of these different technologies. What do you think? What happens? Are, are there any... If if we have very little space for the default mode network, if if we fill all that space up with scrolling and Facebook and so on, what are the impacts of that? Why is is that a problem? Yeah, I think it's it is potentially a problem, uh, just because there's less time spent in this more inner focused, uh, imaginative uh, mode. Um, there's also, you know, another side consequence of, of that which is, again, for example, in learning context, if students are, you know, distracted into their phones, um, it's, you know, more of a, a potential learning deficit that, that can arise uh, in addition uh, to what you're talking about. Um, you're talking about is, you know, private time that might have been once devoted to focusing inward and Walking in the woods Imagine and looking the future and thinking about the past. Now you're just hooked, hooked into your phone and more in, into an external mode. So that you know potentially could affect um, one's the richness of one's uh, imaginative life for sure. Um, we've we've also been interested in in you know other ways in which distraction can impact impact learning. Okay. Um, and uh, one of the questions I've asked everybody that I've interviewed was uh, if if it had been you who had been uh, elected uh, as the president and you had run on a platform of make America imaginative again, <laughs> what might you have done in your first hundred days in office? If I had run on a program of make America imaginative again. If your, if your sense was that there was... That the that uh, a lot of the problems that were being encountered were due to um, the place not being as imagine imagination not being as vibrant as it could be. What might you do to sort of like so you know some people I've spoken to have said well you know there's the the the, the over uh, the, the the decline of um, free play for example in children's lives or the the push for testing and education being far far all the stress and pressure on young people around testing uh, and that kind of stuff that actually if we were to reduce some of that then there would be more room for imagination in in people's lives yeah um yeah i'm not sure what what i would do um i might have, you know stress the you know, try to create incentives for things like uh, getting people to read more and, you know, uh, focus less on on the Internet and, and their phones, time away from social media, things of, of the, I think, you know, reading is a time when people, you can really go inward um, when some of these constructive uh, aspects of imagination are at work. Um and I, th I think that if I could find some way to incentivize people to do more of that, um, that might be that might be something I would do uh, re related to that uh, Make America Imaginative Again uh, mm -hmm. program. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, encouraging also finding incentives for uh, creative uh, and art- artistic activity, things of that nature. Uh, I would have probably supported uh, the National Endowment for uh, for the Arts, uh, things of that nature. Mm. And th- and the last thing was I, in the paper that I read that you and Donna wrote. You wrote she wrote there was something about how um, that you see that that you now see the function of episodic memory as being primarily future focused that it's that that it's that which which i thought was really which would be really interesting to hear you say a bit more about that the idea that our memory the prime function of our memory is to help us to imagine the future have i got that right Could yeah you that was explain that? that was yeah that was the, the way we talked about what we refer to as the our constructive episodic simulation hypothesis going uh, back about a decade uh, to suggest that, that that's at least one of the important uh, functions of, uh, of this uh, episodic memory ability is to, uh, is to help us create these imagined futures, to be able to profitably use our past experience to simulate upcoming future experiences, and that uh, from our perspective, the, the system uh, may be set up in a way uh, that allows us to maximize that kind of ability to take bits and pieces of what have happened in the past and then put them, them together in new ways that allow us to think ahead and anticipate and, and imagine the future. And so the reason why we refer to that we have referred to this as constructive episodic uh, simulation is is because we also think there there may be a, an interesting downside to this constructive setup of our episodic system, which is that it may make us prone to certain kinds of memory errors. So the same flexibility that's good for a system that is going to support our ability to project into the future and take bits and pieces of our experience, recombine them in novel ways, may sometimes lead to uh, memory errors that are a consequence of this kind of re- a flexible recombination processes as we we uh, refer to it, which is something that is involved in, in both memory and imagination. And recently we've done some work in, in my lab, uh, in, in fact, uh, that's uh, suggested a link uh, between the two. This is work that's been led by a graduate student in the lab, Alexis Carpenter, that provides some evidence that the same flexible recombination ability that allows us to construct novel representations and in her experiments it's not so much focused on the future as on the ability to recombine information in a way that allows you to make uh, uh, inferences about about a novel situation that that same ability is is uh, one that contributes to making memory errors uh, because when you sometimes put together two episodes two different very different episodes in a way that allows you to make an inference uh, that relates the two you may sometimes mix up elements of the two episodes and think that's something that happened in uh, a feature of episode A. uh, You may transport over to episode B and later have a a mistaken memory. And so without going into all the details of the experimental paradigm, we now have some evidence on this. So that originated in in, uh, the idea that Addis and I put forth, that flexible recombination is a good feature of the episodic system, that allows you to uh, to construct uh, 
novel simulations of future scenarios, but may have this downside in also contributing to memory errors, which is a hallmark, of, of course, of our constructed memory uh, system. 